online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. A view from the vineyard with Charlotte Christensen and Virgin Wines. Because life's too short for boring wine. I couldn't stop thinking about if I could make the world's number one white wine, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. Typical of a, a good Sauvignon Blanc, it's a 13% alcohol, but around 9% alcohol, I would be on to a commercial winner. In fact, I went further than that, went lying in bed that night. I mentioned to my dear wife, Bridget, I said, wow, if I can do this, I'll make you a rich woman. Here at Virgin Wines, we believe that life's too short for boring wine, which is why we search the world for the most exciting independent winemakers and use thousands of our customer ratings to shape our range of premium quality exclusive wines. Head to virginwines.co.uk and start your wine journey with us today. Handpicked by us, loved by you. Today I'm joined by Dr. John Forrest, owner of Forrest Wines based in New Zealand. John has been working in wine for over 30 years and set up Forrest Wines in the 1980s when New Zealand wine had just started to become extremely popular. Prior to setting up Forrest Wines, John worked as a research scientist and it seems John's science background has certainly influenced his winemaking. He's been a pioneer in creating low alcohol wine following years of research and development into vineyard training and harvesting techniques. I'm so looking forward to talking to John about setting up Forest Wines, how the New Zealand wine industry has developed since the 1980s, and finding out more about John's collection of wines, especially his low alcohol wines. So welcome, John. Thank you so much for joining me on A View from a Vineyard today. I know it's been an extremely early start for you. Am I right? <laughs> I, I'm normally up at 5am, so it doesn't it's perfect timing. Oh, really? Okay, so John mm-hmm. is speaking to me from New Zealand. So we're recording this just after 6am his time, early morning coffee time and 7pm my time, which is sort of glass of wine time. But unfortunately, I don't have a glass of wine with me. But 6am um, is also, from what I understand, a very good time to taste wine, isn't it? When uh, your taste buds and your senses are a bit more alert. I do all my critical tasting in the morning, for sure. And as early as 6am or, or do you tend to have a, a coffee and a not, piece of taste I, first? The staff won't come in then, but I would taste <laughs> it if I could. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you um, getting up super early to talk to us today. What I'd love to do is, is start by launching straight in and hearing a bit more about your, your, your journey into wine. What made you decide to leave your work as a research scientist to establish forest wines? And I'd love to hear a bit more about what area of research you, you were in. Ah, yeah, sure. I I started out in classical sort of neurophysiology at a place called in the University of Otago, uh, which basically, you know, was looking traditionally by impaling the nerves of my model was was um, mice and looking at denervation, which is, you know, when you damage a nerve and how you what happens and how you maintain any connection with the muscle and its muscle health. That was my PhD. And then I changed when I went to the Salk Institute in America to an interesting area which was looking at that same problem, but from a molecular level because the you know the ability to study the DNA right down to the you know the every digit that determines all everything we are uh, had just developed. So all the molecular techniques, uh, 
and then I went on to back to Australia and worked on um, problems of contaminating bl black uh, wool expression in merino sheep, which is very interesting. And then back to New Zealand to look at gene mapping for commercial traits in animals, you know, beneficial traits and at the genetic level. Very, very technical area, area you're yeah, in. But... Yes, yes. Absolutely. So, so what was the point at which you decided I want to leave this sort of research life behind and I want to start working in wine? Uh, really, it was 80, 1988 and um, New Zealand was going through a revolution where the government was removing itself from people's life and its responsibility for such things as funding academic research. So there was very little to no money for research and I was rather depressed about it I suppose so my wife was smart enough um, to say go and do something else as we drank wine liked wine collected wine and I came from Marlborough and Marlborough I think Cloudy Bay was having a second vintage and I was a farmer's son I figured I could grow grapes so I just packed my bag and, and all the family into a car and went to Marlborough went home and uh, bought a little bare land with a garage on which we converted into a cottage to live in and the rest is history really yeah it sounds like such a brave decision to make to to take such a huge career change and yeah and, and to i think that probably reflected me and that i am a risk taker and uh my, my bridget my wife who's actually sitting beside me here early in the morning with a cup of tea you know was was prepared to indulge me so bridget went back to work full-time in medicine to pay for the folly of going into the you know, wine business. Now, something I'm really intrigued to ask you, coming from a sciencey background, wine has so many different elements to it. Obviously, you have the the aspects in the in the vineyard and and the growing of grapes, and then you have a lot of stuff that goes in the winery and in the blending, and a lot of the winemakers' creativity can come out in that process as well. What I'd love to hear from you is: Do you think wine is more of a science or more of an art? If you pushed me i'd say ultimately art oh. but you've got to, you've got to have sign sound science approach and and here's something funny my last boss in science in his annual review of my performance said perhaps too artistic to be a great scientist so he was probably nailed my character perfectly and I fell into wine I didn't ever consider it but I think I fell into grape growing winemaking and it, it absolutely suited my personality that's a that's a lovely story too artistic to to follow the science route but artistic in the right way to to pursue your dreams and, and to make wine yeah <laughs> so um i understand today that forest wines is a family operation your wife is involved and i think also your daughter um, yep. could you tell me a bit more about what your different roles are and what i really am keen to know about is what it's like working with your family and it's something that i can imagine is extremely <laughs> involved <laughs> yes yes uh, well our daughter joined us five years ago ish and about two and a half years ago I said you know take you can take take over the reins as as general manager production manager so it it's been a learning curve for both of us um, I mean I, I love working in a family business I, I see a huge opportunity to set up if you like a you know a wine dynasty from Marlborough, New Zealand, because we are one of the great wine regions and we're only 40 odd years old. And, you know, in 400 years, I'm sure 
the family businesses, and some of them at Marlborough will have survived and be as famous as some of the classic French ones. So I think it's a huge opportunity, and that that's one of the things that drives me is trying to do you know but develop my company in a creative but safe financial way to hand it on to the the next generation, and we're in that transition right now. So Beth. It is the lead role in that. Our oldest son, um, who's a marine biologist, is a chairman of our board and is is also involved in, in some aspects of the business and may develop more. And our youngest son's a marketer and who knows where he may land. I've, we've never insisted our children join the business. They've always sat back and let them want to join the business, which I think is important. On a, on a daily basis, Beth and I, you know, can argue about how things may be done. I mean, you know, but um, in many ways, um, I think the business is running well at the moment. My daughter runs it in terms of a business better than I did because it's not my strength. I'm now free to be, I think I'd call myself the science and innovations officer for forest wines, which sounds grand, but it means that I'm absolutely free to follow my talents and interests in developing other aspects of our lower alcohol wine, uh, creative and different varieties that I think could be of uh, potential commercial value for New Zealand and uh, and look in looking at moving the company in a more sustainable and organic way. So there's lots of things that my talents are better used for, which I'm now free to, to do. And I think that's a wonderful thing if you get transition right. It, you know, the older generation can still contribute. Uh, Bridget's still uh, now retired for medicine just recently, but still heavily involved you know, in the management side of the business and the, in the public face of it. So, yeah, I think the family is working effectively and well in, in the company. So who's the best taster, would you say, out of the, all of you? Oh, Beth. Um, females oh, really? <laughs> yeah, females. I, I never do any of my critical tastings without... A female. I've always tried to have a, a female on my wine team, and I'll often walk over to my office, which is just by just in the majority of females, and put a wine in front of them all and say, "What do you think of that?" Before I commit it to a bottle. So there you are, unashamed of admission that that I think the, the female sensitivity uh, is better. Than the males. I wonder if I agree with you on that one. <laughs> I, I'd like to agree <laughs> with you on that one. I've, I've actually just finished my diploma in wines, and um, the tasting element of it was very full on. But yeah. I absolutely loved. I absolutely loved it, and I, you know, I absolutely loved the detail of it. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant skill to learn tasting wines. And actually, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc was the the wine that I would use to calibrate my palate. Um, yep. Because it's just one of those wines that's so just got such intensity um, and concentration of, of of fruit flavors, and it really jumps out at you. I'd always use it as my benchmark as a you know a quality intense wine with lots of acidity. So uh, yeah, it was quite quite often tasted at sort of nine in the morning, but pre exams. <laughs> <laughs> so talking yeah. of um, New Zealand wines, I'm I'm sure most of my listeners will have tried a New Zealand wine and probably um, a wine from Marlborough before, which is um, where you started um, Forest Wines. And, and yeah. Marlborough has been incredibly um, successful internationally. I think every shop, uh, corner shop or supermarket or off license in, in the UK 
probably has a, a bottle of Marlboro in it. It really is um, everywhere and, and so popular. And and its popularity, um, you touched on as well before, really sort of came up in the 1980s um, when you set up Forest Wines. And, and what I'd love to, to hear a bit more about is what it felt like to be part of the wine scene in New Zealand in the 80s. Um, there must have been so much excitement and momentum. I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about that. You're, you're right. I mean, if one thing summarised it from a personal perspective, it'd be what a privilege it has been to have lived those 40 years um, and been involved involved in it, you know, because you'd really, as a, as a person, get an opportunity to be in a, at a leading edge of a le what turns out to be a, a world-leading new industry or region, in this case of wine, and, and of course the variety, Sauvignon Blanc. It was fantastic to be in it. It was, it was fun. It was very collegial. You know, people like, you know, gods of the, of the development of mobile Sauvignon Blanc, like Kevin Judd, you know, the famous first winemaker for Cloudy Bay. Well, Juddy's just such a nice guy, yeah. And you can have a conversation with him about anything. And we'd all help each other, you know. If someone had a broken harvester or da-da, you, you, you made your effort to just help them out. You know, we've made wine in our winery for many, many people at short notice because they've got problems or they've got, you know, it's a big year and they haven't got room. So all that... And, you know, as it's grown, it's become more corporate and it's become more global. A degree of that informality has has gone. Um, you know, I, I mean, having said that, I've got to say people genuinely still care for each other and, and look out for each other. And I can go to the biggest company in Marlborough and they will, will help me if I have, have a problem. You know, it might be a little more formal and structured to do that rather than just wandering out and having a coffee with with, with the person initially. Honestly, it it's, it might be a Kiwi thing, but it's but it, that's how I think it still operates, and we certainly operate with that philosophy. And I think we get reciprocated by lots of our colleagues. So, no, it's still a lovely place to work, an industry to be in, and it's still growing and still exciting, you know. So, no, yeah, I've been truly uh, fortunate to, to have landed where we did. That sounds like such a, a, a lovely industry to, to work in over there and, and to have people, no matter how big their wineries are or how small they are, sort of all get together and, and help each other. That's uh, it's really lovely to hear about that. What I'd, I'd like to know a bit more about is you've been working in wine now for, for over 30 years. What have you sort of noticed as the, the biggest changes and developments um, to the New Zealand wine industry during that time? Technology and advances in technology must have really changed certain aspects. Um, but, you know, what, what are some of the things that you've noticed? I, I suppose the biggest thing is just the scale now of the mobile wine industry. I mean, and put it in context, um, when we first joined it, there were, I think we were number seven in, in the Marlborough. There was less than a million dollars of exports and, you know, a couple of thousand hectares of grapes. And today it's well in excess of 30,000 hectares of grapes. They spread for around 70, 80 kilometres up the Wairau Valley. Uh, when we were first there, it was about seven or eight kilometres in the Wairau Valley. It's you know, it's a $2 billion export industry. It's about that much in wine tourism and domestic sales. 
So I think we're number four in New Zealand's agricultural earners now for the total wine industry, which you know, 85 plus percent is Marlborough and 90% of that 85% Sauvignon Blanc. So that's really the biggest change you see, just its influence on a society, you know, i.e. the Marlborough wine region. It is the dominant you know, industry. It's what people gain their employment or their families, members gain their employment. Um, so, so it does, you know, impinge like the classic French regions on the psyche of, of the people in the region, you know, and it's why people come to the region. Um, so that, that, that's from growing up as a boy on a dusty, you know, sheep and cropping farm, and we also had a dairy farm. I mean, the contrast at, at Marlborough then, as an isolated backwater at the bottom of the world, uh, to now a multinational, you know, high-profile global wine region uh, is so, it's such a contrast. Yeah, you know, I hope I can, hope I've sort of explained a little, a little just what a difference it was, you know, it is today, and I think a better place for it. You know, that, so that's that's the biggest change. I mean, the winemaking honestly hasn't changed a lot. Yes, the the sophistication and size of how you operate a big winery compared with you know how we classically operate is the model that you, you'd be familiar with. Um, is it, a huge contrast. You know, they are very sophisticated, technically complex factories for producing te the technically best wine possible and in a most in an efficient way. And, and that's that's just the fact that you, if you're processing, say, 70,000 tonne of grapes you know, and you've got a limited three-week time to do it, <laughs> you, they have developed sophisticated ways of handling that volume of fruit. Such interesting insights, John. Thank you for, for sharing that. Now, we've, we've touched on um, Sauvignon Blanc already, and you just can't really talk about New Zealand without mentioning the incredible success story of the, the white grape Sauvignon Blanc. Um, it's hugely popular internationally. I think the most popular white grape or Chardonnay, I can't yes, remember. Yes, that's right. Um, and it's, it's the most planted grape in New Zealand. I think it makes up about 40% of plantings. But there are also lots of other excellent quality white wines being made from different grapes over in New Zealand. Um, yeah. I wanted you to, to tell me a bit more about some of the other white wines you produce from other grapes other than Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, well, look, I'll put a plug for Chardonnay because... You know, Chardonnay suits cool climates, both in the in the in the champagne style and in the dry white style. So I think New Zealand's Chardonnays are exceptional, and they they cover the gambit from the richer, more slightly tropical style from slightly warmer climates, like in the Hawke's Bay and the North Island of New Zealand, through through to you know cool climate southern. Chardonnays and the most exciting new Chardonnay would be from limestone rich terraces in the Waitaki Valley of North Otago, about 150 kilometres from central Otago, but its its unique point of difference or similarity to the great Chablis of, of, of Burgundy is this activated limestone that's in, that gives you that minerality and that, that sort of briny uh, saltiness that, that you see in the, the oyster shell character. It's very prominent, and I think so. I think Chardonnay is is should be recognised in the, the various styles. 
the most exciting grape, which we were one of the founders of bringing in to New Zealand and developing, it's without doubt Alberino. Alberino uh, planted in the warmer sites of, of Marlborough and, and some other sites in the North Island is absolutely exceptional. It's pure, varietally defined uh, as it is in you know the northwest the glacier of Spain. When I first tried the first berry, as it ripened, it was about seven years ago, my mind ran back to what it must have been like 30-odd years before that in tasting in any hunter, tasting the first Sauvignon Blanc grapes as they ripen because the intensity of the flavours stood out, you know, and even stood it up above what I'd ever tasted out of a bottle of uh, Alberino from Spain. So I got quite excited by its potential. It, that hasn't dimmed. I'm absolutely a disciple of of the potential for Alberino, and it's interesting that every market we sell in globally is now want, wanting uh, a little bit of Alberino from us. We are planting more. We can't keep up with supply with demand. So that's got a bright future. I'd like to put a, one more plug in for for a grape that's perhaps not trending, but it's fantastic wine, and that's Chenin Blanc. And again, because of our cool climate and Chenin's famous acidity. It suits what New Zealand does. And the style that I think works in New Zealand is a is a style that's part barrel, part uh, stainless steel for the flavour, and perhaps also a little malolactic ferment for, for softening of the acid and, and textile development. So, so there's, there's three varietals, one classic Chardonnay and two new. And we have just in the process of, of planting a couple of sites with Fiana, which are the Italian um, aromatic white. And I think that may have an opportunity in New Zealand, but that's um, to be seen, of course. That's so interesting, John. I'm, I'm actually feeling really quite thirsty after um, <laughs> you detailing those different white wines. Um, very interesting that you brought over the um, Alberino. That's um, another grape that's very popular over here. It's, it's interesting when you associate some of these grapes so much with countries, you know, like Spain, as opposed to other grapes which have more of an international yeah. reputation. The last um, uh, Waitrose, you know, have a very famous, very successful London Wine Weekend, and I was. This was now going back uh, two and a half years because of COVID, of course. But I was at it, and we just landed the first um, Alberino for Waitrose, so I brought some bottles over to show, and it was incredible that the, the people, the the the. The buzz that there was this Alberino that was more fruity and more exciting than what they loved from you know northwestern Spain there on the table, and I had just a line of people suddenly descend on you know, my stand wanting to taste it. They, oh, I don't want the Sauvignon. I want just show me your Alberino. So that just reinforced how much the English market liked it, but how much also the opportunity sat there it was there for. New Zealand, particularly Marlborough, I think to 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 again exploit a classic varietal uh, in a different and exciting new way. I'm definitely going to get have to get hold of some. You you have me absolutely sold. Online on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. A view from the vineyard with Charlotte Christensen and Virgin Wines because. 
life's too short for boring wine. We should um, not forget to mention red wine because New Zealand yeah. produces lots of red wine as well. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the red wines you produce? Yeah, we when we we actually the week before before we bought our first land in Marlborough, we actually signed a contract in a piece of stony gravelly country out the back of uh, Hastings in the North Island east coast of New Zealand and that area became known as the Gimlet Gravel Special Viticultural Region. So if you want to be adventurous and try world-class Cabernet or Shiraz based wines then that's where it's at in New Zealand. Um, so you know we can do that spectrum of of the big red area yeah, in selected hotter areas in New Zealand. But what's New Zealand's famous for? It's really the Sauvignon Blanc in a red, in a red wine sense is Pinot Noir. You know, it, it grows sort of over world, world class over 700 kilometres from the, you know, the mid of the North Island right to the virtually the tip of the South Island through various wine regions and it's they all have their different styles and characters. But really now with winemaker experience and vine age and site selection the quality of these wines is quite exceptional in fact last night i was at a meeting and the host pulled out a couple of very good uh, classic burgundies well i i immediately said oh that's like the waitaki valley and oh that one's like the brancott valley on the southern side of marlborough you know i think we our pinot noirs have really improved we've got um some saint laurent uh and some malbec planted in marlborough and they are part of uh, part of um some of our wines and we occasionally make them as a, as a single varietal but you know there is no uh, to my knowledge budding alternative red that that is really firing yet there's there, as i say people playing around the edges with that uh, as would be one uh, but small plantings uh, but but really it's Pinot Noir and Pinot Noir. I do love a New Zealand Pinot Noir. Um, I think they're they're very accessible as well and excellent excellent price point as well and yeah they just have this beautifully concentrated and, and pure red fruit that is um, incredibly Moorish I would say. <laughs> yeah and I've so, I, got to say now they that interlaying expression of terroir and some textural and and the more some more ethereal earthy type aromas into the wine too you know just beyond just the the bright red fruit so that's, that's quite exciting i think so definitely you know a, a spectrum of of pinoirs for for different people to enjoy you know they those that fruiter and style to you know more res, restrained complex styles that are yeah i guess more more intellectual wines as well yeah <laughs> so john you you've mentioned to me that you are a massive foodie which i am also and for me it's always very important when i'm talking about wine to also talk about food because for me i would argue that that the two need to be kind of close together if you're not if you're even if you're just going to kind of a casual wine tasting i'm i'm always of the view that i like to have a, a few snacks to complement the wine and to have it in a bit more context how you how you'd usually have it so what i want to know from you is what your perfect three course meal would be and which of your wines you would pair with each course at the first, the entree would have to be new zealand white bait and white bait is about a five to six centimeter long fish that's only half a centimeter 
wide, transparent, and has a combination of flavour somewhere between fresh squid and lobster. It's very delicate with a distinctly saltini, briny yeah, aroma of fresh fish. And it, it's delightful. It's seasonal. It only runs from the sea up New Zealand east coast and west coast rivers in the spring, and you can catch it in a net. And from the Wairau Bar at the end of the Wairau, Great Wairau River that's made the Marlborough Wine region, if you work hard for a couple of hours with a dragnet, you can get yourself a pound or three. And what I would do is take these fresh white bait, and it's a very simple, pure recipe. You beat about per pound three uh, eggs, a splash of milk slash cream, I like a sort of 50-50 mix, salt and pepper, mix together and stand a little while so that it coats everything, all the white bait. And then with a generous spoon in a buttered pan, cook up what we call a patty, you know, a, a little, like a mini burger thing, and don't overcook it just as it gets browned, you know, golden, turn it over, and then add, then take it out warm, put a little more butter on top, a sprinkling of more pepper and salt, I hope I, I hope I said plenty of salt and pepper in that recipe. I might not have. <laughs> and that's the white bait. Squeeze a lemon. So simple. And, of course, the wine is the Doctor's Riesling, which carries that beautiful Germanic Middle Mosul style, a very famous wine of ours, and a touch of residual sweetness. And for those with a dry palate, I'll go with a drier Riesling, the forest um, Riesling, with a bit of age on is, is stunningly matched. The main huts to tradition here and, and my um, British heritage, a beef wellington, new potatoes, and a medley of al dente vegetables. Um, the key to the beef wellington is that it, on top of it, it has a wonderful pate of chicken livers, mushrooms, bacon, and, and uh, the requisite herbs. Yeah, obviously with lashings of butter in it as well. And the pate must be fluffy. Uh, puff pastry, uh, medium rare, no more, delicious, and ribeye, not not uh, fillet, because I the fat, extra fat and moisture in the ribeye makes the much better steak. And to finish, well, my favourite dessert of all time, uh, a baked New York cheesecake. You can also grate a little lemon zest on the top, because I would do it with a whipped or Chantilly-type cream that's a citrus version of that the combination and one the only wine our wonderfully betritized uh baron auslaser style um sweet riesling if i if you had the choice in the world you'd do our 2017 i think it's clocked over 17 gold medals and four trophies globally so it's a great expression of what new zealand does well which is sweet Botrytis style wines with high acidity to balance the sugar. So I hope that's got your sal salivating there. I have not had supper yet and I am oh. absolutely starving after hearing that. Um, I love the way you talk about food. You know, I can definitely see your science background and also your creative background coming together, you know, with the, the detail yeah. um, <laughs> of how you kick all of that, but with that with that flair. I've also yeah. never done a, a ribeye beef wellington. That is, that is, that is interesting because I do like a bit of fat. Um, yeah, yeah. Beef, no, so that, I'm, I'm going to have to give that to a me. Go. That's the secret to it. Uh, the ribeye carries that extra flavour, extra juiciness. Yeah, through the meat, it's just so much better than fillet. With with the lovely pate, herbal pate on top, and the beef, it's got to be a 
Tati Bogler, Waitaki Valley, North Otago, Pinonwa. That was my first choice. Mm -hmm. And closely followed by our, our Marlborough uh, Pinonwa with age on. So we have a wonderful, we have some of the oldest, if not the oldest, Pinot Noir vines in Marlborough in the southern valleys and um, great complexity and earthiness and it, would, it goes really well with that Pinot Noir. But the, the limestone from the North Otago is again a great match. Sounds absolutely delicious. I'm, I'm looking forward to coming around for, uh, for supper one day. <laughs> the white bait is sitting in the freezer waiting. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so John, you have been a pioneer in creating low alcohol wines. And mm -hmm. before we get into talking a bit about the, the methods and techniques you, you have used to do this, I'm really interested to know what made you decide to start this project and, and create these lower alcohol wines. It's an interesting story. Um, back in 2006, I began, and it was a serendipitous observation. In 2006, I made the first cabinet-styled Riesling, the Doctors, which I recommended with the um, the white bait. And a cabinet Riesling, uh, you know, contains about 40 grams residual sweetness, plus or minus, uh, and th therefore you can leave sugar in the wine, and that allows you to make around a um, eight and a half to nine percent alcohol finished wine. So they're fresh, fruity, you know, vibrant, balanced acidity and minerality, which we have from the stones of the Wairau River, it's late in Germany and the Mosul, of course. When I released that wine in September of 06, every woman in the room commented on how nice it was to have a good wine, but with lower alcohol. And a, a, literally, a, a light came on in my brain and all the way, all the four-hour drive from Christchurch, New Zealand, where I was tasting, to back to Mul Marlborough, um, I couldn't stop thinking about if I could make the world's number one white wine, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, typical of a, a good Sauvignon Blanc, it's a 13% alcohol, but around 9% alcohol, I would be on to a commercial winner. In fact, I went further than that, went lying in bed that night, I mentioned to my dear wife, Bridget, I said, wow, if I can do this, I'll make you a rich woman. Well, she's, she's still holding <laughs> me to that promise, but but it's proved to be true. I mean, today we are 75% plus lower alcohol wines and doubling you know, as fast as we can find grapes and grow grapes and, and to demand. It is... It has been a privilege again to to see a movement from the sharp end start from nothing. In fact, from active resistance when I first, in around 2010-11, took the first samples to the UK, to now global acceptance, a whole new category called low-no. Um, and we can argue about the no in a moment, but, but the point being, it, it, an analogy I give you is that I felt like I'm on my surfboard and I see a small wave coming and it builds and builds and builds. And right now I'm on it. I'm on the sort of top of that monster sliding down <laughs> with my heart racing down the other side. Sheer exhilaration and never, not quite sure where the ride's going to end or, or I'm, am I going to get out of it? It, it? it is just another sheer exciting new thing to be part of and yeah it's just unstoppable now it's a serious 
bona fide movement. And New Zealand is at the forefront of it because in 2012, we, a small group of us got together and formed the New Zealand Lighter Wines Initiative, and the government supported it 50-50 financially. And we've now got a significant group of New Zealand winemakers making really decent lighter and alcohol wines and committed to it. And, you know, the opportunities that we're all getting now are, are quite phenomenal. So, no, very exciting to be part of. Um, just couldn't can't emphasize that enough. That's, that's very fascinating to, to hear about that. And there's definitely more of a movement over here in the UK, you know, with, with mindfulness and people looking after their health and, you know, their bodies, and their, their minds to, to be drinking quality and, and not always to be having, you know, a lot of alcohol and looking for alternatives. Yeah. Certainly last year when I was pregnant, I had nine months completely off alcohol. And then when you come back to it, you know, your, your mindset is, is slightly different. And, you know, I, I definitely think these days I'm often looking for, for things that you know are lovely and give you give you pleasure in the evenings but you know you don't want to feel the alcohol from them it's more you you want to enjoy the drink and you're drinking for different reasons yeah absolutely i mean i i find myself reaching for my one of my lower alcohol wines so it's it's just subconscious thing more often than than i would have ever thought and it's it's around exactly what you said that i want to start the evening and i'm thirsty and you know, I like I always liked a volume of wine in my mouth and to swallow a decent volume rather than sipping it you know it's never been me <laughs> it's just in my personality so it allows me to have a good glass of wine not feel the effect of the alcohol but have all the joy that that brings in terms of relaxation and enjoyment with my sitting with my wife or my friends uh, enjoying the sunset sunset yeah, all those wonderful things that, that add quality to your life, and they never get, of course, never get those, never get assessed in health surveys about alcohol quality of life. It, it, it is an enhancer, and it's fascinating at the start. Woman led the charge in every country we've gone into. Professional women have led the charge into lighter alcohol wines, always around the wellness and awareness of their body and their health. Men follow always around the opportunity to carry on enjoying a drink and mm. being able to drive, being able to drive your golf uh, ball straight, whatever the motivation is, have mow the lawns after after a bottle of rosé, nine, eight, 9% at lunchtime. But, you know, that's how it's grown in every country that we, that we now export to. And without getting too, too technical, I wanted yeah. you to kind of share a little bit about the methods you have used to, to create the lower alcohol wines. Yeah. So again, harking back to what we talked to, first talked about being a, you know, an ex-medical uh, science researcher. When I had that revelation after I produced the 06 uh, cabinet Riesling, it wasn't a big step for me to sit down and draw up a loosely, I might say, a, a research program about how you might achieve this. And I wasted time physiochemically dealkalizing for a couple of years because those techniques still don't produce wines that don't have compromised quality aspects to them. 
uh, but they are widely used. I struck upon the idea of trying to slow the plant's ability to make sugar, and hence, when you harvested it, one would hope that less sugar does translates to less alcohol. And so you take a piece of dry wine, but with you know around the nine percent alcohol. Well, without simplifying it, I made my staff in in triplets uh, remove three leaves at a time from different parts of the the the, the shoot that contains a Marlboro about fourteen to fifteen leaves that ripens a bunch of grapes. And what I quickly tasted in the bunch of grapes where they would remove the leaves, that there was a set of leaves removed at a certain time that's, that allowed the grape to carry on making flavour, dropping acid, uh, ripening the skin and the pip, the bitter things, but could drop the sugar rate of accumulation in the berry and hence in the juice and the wine between 30 to 40 percent. So there you are, that's, that's as simple as the technique or complex is. And then we commercialised it by changing how we pruned in the winter so we could cut those leaves off at virtually no cost with a machine when we needed to. And the combina that combination of innovation and commercialization has resulted in what I would call the selective leaf removal strategy for producing wines at around 9% of high quality. Yeah, how many years were you, was this sort of in, in development for? Really, we won a gold, our first gold medal for the Doctors Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, it was some I forget what show it was but somewhere in the in the UK I think in 2012. So from six to twelve was the the active part of the research program, and we for really from from twelve onwards we've been still active in research terms, but it's all been around substituting for the feel and taste of the loss of four to five percent alcohol. Because putting aside. Alcohol's effect on the central nervous system, which you know, can be pleasant, but in excess isn't a good idea. Alcohol has a huge number of other effects in a wine that we like. We like its feel of viscosity and roundness, okay? We like what it does to lift the fruit profiles. We like what it does to diminish some of the bitterness in, in wine. So alcohol is an integral part of wine. And when you remove you know, up to 40% of it, you really have to think hard about how you can substitute or fool the human palate when it tastes that wine you've removed it from, that it's not still there. And I think it's fair to say that we have now achieved that in the second half of our development of our, of our, of our lower alcohol program. So that, that's exciting. And now I can honestly say, and several people regularly do, Wow, you couldn't tell that from a 14%, you know, whatever, Marlborough Sauvignon or Marlborough Pinot Rosé or Marlborough Riesling. You know, so the, the, the techniques applicable across a wide variety, you know, range of wines, which is important. And, and it's really an, ex, we're an exciting place to be. Authentic wine at 9%, you know, plus or minus, is giving you everything I think a drinker wants. Yeah, and that is, I mean, that is considerably lower than the alcohol can get, especially for, for the red wines, isn't it? Yeah. Now, unfortunately, international travel isn't quite possible at the moment. And I no. must say, New Zealand is right up there for me in terms of wine destinations or destinations in general. Um, I hope to visit one day. Now, what I'd love to hear from you is what 
you would recommend as three must visit regions um, for, a, for a wide tourist like myself? Right. Well, obviously, Mul Marlborough is high on, high on that list just because of its beauty and its size and its vibrancy. Uh, the, the next one is the, the central Otago, the deep south, again, for its grandeur and its, and its aridness but also the beauty of the Pinot Noir there and you know, some other cool climate aromatic white varietals like, like the Riesling, I think are exceptional. And you know, there's lots of adventure tourism if you're so inclined to throw yourself off a bridge with a bit of <laughs> elastic band tied around your ankles, but it's not me, but you may want to. Um, not me. <laughs> <laughs> and the third one, it was a hard choice, but I went for Martinborough, which is just in the bottom east coast of the North Island. It's on the same latitude actually as Marlborough. The North Island extends just past the South Island, if you look at a world map. And it is, it's it's lovely, small, boutique -y in that sense. It's now the retirement capital of Wellington. It's got a half hour commuter train to Wellington, the capital city of New Zealand, which is itself a beautiful harbour city. And you know, a place like Greytown, yeah, which is one of the three little towns in the region, sitting there in a cafe on a nice day, having breakfast before you're doing a day's wine trailing and who you're going to see, you often, you know, get to see the actual family that's making it, the, the crafty. Yeah, that that's that sort of experience. You know, we actually, Bridget and I, my dear wife, still try and work in our wine shop. We, you know, we obviously have staff that run it, but we value and always valued meeting the people behind the name. So we find that important in, in who we are. And yeah, that, that's probably why I like to go to Martinborough for that sense. A little, it's a little, it stayed small. It, it's that, you know, that's feel about it. So that's my third region I'd recommend. But every region has its, has its you know, pleasures and yeah, advantages. I'll definitely put those three on my list. And yeah, as I say, I hope one day to uh, to brave brave also the, the the plane journey, the twenty four hour plane journey, and and, and head to New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Um, Although I hear Richard high... Branson might be able to get you here in in twenty minutes <laughs> soon. I don't know about what, oh. what it will cost you, but I'm sure it'll be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> worth it for the wine. That's what I say. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, John, um, I wanted to ask you, at the end of a long day, which today will definitely be for you, seeing as you got up at 6am, which one of your wines would you choose as your first sort of go-to aperitif, that, that first wine to, to really wind down after the end, end of a long day? Assuming it's the sort of normal Marlborough sunny evening with temperate, you know, temperatures, there, I've got, I've got two now. I hate to tell you, and they are both no, just accidentally lower in alcohol. It's, it would be the off dry cabinet style doctors because it's so refreshing, so crisp, and so sort of ah, god, end of the day, and and of course uh, the the doctors rosé made from Pinot Noir and Arnais, and that's an interesting combination of delicious strawberry, raspberry, Pinot Noir flavours with that lovely l lemon bovina sort of herbal thyme thing of of the aromatic Northern Italian Arnaise. By the way, Arnaise is there because it's lower in alcohol naturally, um, so it gives us an opportunity to, to make a 9% you know, rosé. And it's that, com it's that freshness and, and cleanness of that rosé and the fact that 
I've got a clean head after even a second glass in the in the sun. That sounds absolutely delightful, and I'm sure you'll be counting down the next twelve hours until you can <laughs> have one of those <laughs> as your as your aperitif. Um, well, but John, uh, I just wanted to say. Thank you so, so much for, for joining us today. It's been um, so interesting learning all about your life and all about um, New Zealand and all the changes and developments over, over the past 30 years that you have witnessed. And um, finding out about your, your low alcohol wines has been yeah very, very fascinating and um, something I'm sure will be on lots of people's radars. So thank you so, so much. And I hope you have a very lovely day. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. And I am really looking forward to taking the opportunity as soon as I'm allowed out of the country to, to reacquaint myself with all my friends in, in, in the UK, which is our biggest market. And uh, I truly enjoy coming to, to see you all. You stay safe and also have a great evening. I'll, I'll see you for a glass of that, that low alcohol Riesling, I hope, one day soon. I look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, John. Bye. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. A view from the vineyard with Charlotte Christensen and Virgin Wines. Because life's too short for boring wine. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.